episode of like dragon like sun i'm jay outway and my name is jack outway and this is a father-son podcast about dungeons and dragons that's right we are doing a series to celebrate our 100th episode yes um where we talk about 101 things you have to do in D before you die well we don't have to do them but you keep saying that i'm a firm believer that well, you have your to life this. will be better if you get 101 okay. of these things See how many of them you can cross off the list. Maybe you've done them already. Maybe mm. you've got more to add. I don't know. We have already had a, a discussion in the past two parts. This is part three, if you're joining us now. Um, uh, yeah, if you're joining us now, go back. Yeah. There are 26 gems. 27 gems. 27? 28, 28 gems. gems. Oh, my goodness. Um, already uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, we're picking up from number 73. Uh, if you're new to the podcast uh this might seem an unusual episode we are are basically just going to list off some of our favorite cool things that we love about D and that we've gonna, done or want to do yeah and uh, we're gonna work our way down this list and hopefully inspire you to do some cool stuff too yeah the first one that we want to touch on today is perhaps something for inspiration or even a bit of fun or to really get into the whole D D community spirit yeah. Uh, and that is to participate in watching an actual play. Our main recommendation, of course, being Critical Role. If you've listened to our podcast, we make reference to them all the time. Maybe you're a critter too. And maybe you're a critter already and you already watch Critical Role. If you've already done that, and we'll get to in what Critical Role is in a, in a second, what is an actual play? But I'd say even go beyond that. Look for, for smaller channels that are just starting up and show them some love show them yeah. a bit of support so uh, and again why would you watch other people play D? &D? Mm, that's what actual play means um watch them actually playing and my mm. answer to that would be because some of the people that are out there doing it are very good at D. &D. but what does that mean good at D? &D? okay so when i was growing up as a kid we didn't have much in the way of role models mm. uh to base our table behavior on well that's not what you really should do but go no, on wait i agree, disagree i think we had some pretty toxic pretty bad sort of play styles because we were we were just learning we were just you know figuring it out as we went um and some of the other people we'd played with seemed to have had very combative argumentative tables and so we just kind of emulated that i think if you get out there and have a look at some of the actual plays that you'll see some genuinely beautiful uh cooperative ways that people complement each other that they role play that they give each other space that they um that they're also vulnerable and that you can see that nobody's perfect out there and that that lots of people don't really know all the rules or what dice roll and they get nervous when it's their turn and you get to sort of see the the genuine sort of human condition uh at at its best in in D, &D. Uh, through these actual plays. And of course, at the very top tier of these actual plays, you get to see people playing some D&D that's, you know, we may never be so fortunate to see that at our own table. 
Um, and so you can sort of share in it vicariously. Um, mm. One thing that I think is also kind of toxic, though, is trying to watch it. Maybe you, you've never played D&D. You see something like Critical Role, and you expect that your table is going to be exactly the same. Um, and that setting up yourself for those expectations is, yeah. is it'd be not like the watching, way to do it, right? It'd be like watching an Olympic athlete do a dive off of a 10-meter platform. And then you get up there and you're like, okay, why can't I dive off the 10-meter platform? Or, why can't I, mean, I even jump off? This thing is very scary. There's, there's something objective about how people grade certain Olympic sports, right? And there's nothing really objective about the D&D experience, right? Which is also why it's a little bit dangerous. Some tables enjoy more you know, more more combat and some tables enjoy more role play. And, you know, and, and many people are not professional voice actors or, you know, people with this sort of this chemistry that is, is magically captured and really what makes the best actual plays and, and fun shows to watch. Um, and it, it is, in, at the end of the day, entertainment, right? And so really when you're watching a critical role or an actual play, understand that it's it's about seeing people play D&D, you know, you can take inspiration from it. Maybe it's a character. Maybe it's an NPC. Maybe it's a certain way that one of them DMs or, or you know, does some sort of role-playing thing. You know, that that's completely fine. I think what becomes unhealthy is when it takes the next step and you are expectant on other people or disappointed in them when they can't replicate right. well, let's your Well, let's just take a step play. back and just look at it from the purely the entertainment perspective. Yeah. It's It moves slow. Uh, if you heard our previous episodes, we talked about painting minis while we watch Critical Role. It's definitely the sort of thing that you can do, you know, something else while you're watching it. And uh, but it is it is good storytelling. Like they mm-hmm. have, you know, really wonderful it's, arcs yeah. and characters in it. And it's a really unique medium too. It is. It's it's special. And if you're into D and D, you'll get it in a way that maybe people who aren't into D and D never will. Um, so it's I think it is part of the culture today, and it's something that uh, is uh, is worth a, a look. They are very long though. We spent around. what five hours watching the latest episode. It's true. Uh, but they're night, all free, no. you know, in, in, a, in a place where sometimes it's, it's especially hard to find classic movies or content, as we found, you know, wherever you are in the world. The nice thing about Critical Role is that they've got all of it cataloged on YouTube and on Twitch as well. Yeah. Um, and if, you, if you're not a member, you do have to wait a little bit for the newest episodes. But trust me, you've got a lot to catch up on. Yeah. If you're you're just starting out, um, but you know, start in the latest season, even even the latest campaign. You don't have to watch, you know, from their first season onwards. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's that's the nice thing as well. I mean, the the in jokes and the references, and I mean they're useful, but there's there's so much to that community, and it, it may seem intimidating, but um, we had to start somewhere. If you want to well, save right? a bit of time as well. You you like watching them at one point two five speed, don't you? Oh well, more than one point two five. I'm <laughs> I've gone all the way to two times speed. I'm that. <laughs> that's just how my brain works now. I don't know. I'm broken. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great experience. Um, something unique again, different from films, different from television in a sense, just because it's this long, unbroken, unedited live stream in a sense yeah. of of this game happening. It, it's really once you get it, you get it. Um, that's what I'll say. Uh, one place that many people don't get is a place not of our realm jumping into D&D, let's say, right? Good transition. Um, and, um, yeah, we're trying, to say, we, we're trying to do little smooth segues between all these. Um, and on number 72, this is something we've talked about in one of our other episodes, and something we want to make, I think, an, a larger I, adventure been, based on. I've been writing this for a while. I'm mm. very excited about this. I mean, 
Um, it's visiting the city of Brass. What is the city of Brass? Just give people a quick. Uh, it is a famous city that has been in every edition going all the way back to first, uh, maybe beyond that. Um, and it is located on the elemental plane of fire. Uh, but it's it, it's like a it's like the an exotic destination, mm. and you know the elemental planes aren't you know they're not out there that far. They're you know they're inner planes. They're yeah. you know they're not that that hard to get to, um, and you don't need to be super high level to survive or traverse inside the city because it's sort of magically protected from the yeah. elemental fieriness of everything that surrounds um, it. And I, I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like we need to do more extra planar travel or encourage people to do more. Um, mm. And I feel like, I feel like City of Brass is a good furthest uh, starting point. It is um, yeah. maybe the followed by the Outlands of Sigil, but that's. I like mean, there's so much there to, to look up if you research the lore. I mean, even listening to our podcast episode, we kind of just scratched the surface of yeah, yeah. What we, we connected our brass setting. dragon with. Yeah. Uh, build with a city of brass thing and yeah i'm i'm i've always sort of i, I go in fits and spurts and noodle away with the ideas of of what it would be as an interesting campaign setting mm. um and just basing a whole sort of thing there yeah uh, and i think it's 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 interesting it's sort of an exotic location and with players being wow. sort of and they could even be they could even sort of have like an expatriate type status they could actually kind of be you know, foreigners living within the city long term. Hmm. Um, there's some interesting ways to, to do yeah. it. I don't know. Again, trying to be careful not to play into harmful or kind of reductive storylines and stereotypes that we see with exotic cities, you know. But um, I think it's, it's a fun setting just because there's so much, again, potential for interesting storytelling and in places outside of your classic medieval, you know, farmland or kingdom or whatever i'm not that saying that those places aren't great but it's just i don't know it's it's a really fun place that exists in in most multiverses if you if you play a campaign it probably exists somewhere and maybe you'll go as far as the underdark or or to the hells if you're in avernus but i've i've really wanted to always go visit the city of brass just it's some part of a larger campaign and maybe that's a little check bucket list thing for you to do as well visit the city of brass with your party at some point um I think it's just a it's a fun location. Really unique. I don't even know how to segue into the next one. Number 71. Customize your digital character sheet. Yes. Um, this is, of course, speaking perhaps mm, most plainly to, to D&D Beyond. I'm not familiar with other digital character create, sheet creating methods. Is there another? Um, well, maybe download the P, like an editable PDF. Um, sure. I think that was one way I used to do it, but D&D Beyond is perhaps the most elegant and widely accepted methods of creating a digital character sheet. Um, and the nice thing about it as well is that if you're a person who likes to customize things um, in, in terms of, of what your character sheet looks like, uh, it's a great way in exercising uh, doing that with D&D Beyond. They've got fun backgrounds, they've got little frames and color palettes There's and something for every character it yeah seems. of course i mean it's, it's just a part of the and character here's something i've been doing as a, D, a dm lately mm -hmm. uh we've been running some one shots and where you know it wouldn't necessarily matter to somebody to fancy up their d 
vintage of character sheet, but I've been handing out inspiration points for anybody who, who right. does. Okay. Um, and so sure enough, as soon as I say inspiration points for anybody who does up their digital character sheet, boom, everybody's got the prettiest character sheets ever. Um, yeah, it's fun. Just it's a fun, fun little thing to start players off with some inspiration. And it also goes to say that basically, yeah, I'm looking at your character sheets and I think they're cool. And yeah. I appreciate the, the extra love you've put into it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's actually a sweet little thing to do, especially if you're doing it online. Just encourage people to put a little bit of love into the character sheets. Not everyone has access to all of the little bells and whistles, though. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, as a as you know, a family, we own a lot of the digital and physical books and whatever's that come with the Indie Beyond. And so part of that is of giving back to my friends and letting them have, because as a DM... I'll have access to all these things on their character sheets and they can just go with my laptop scrolling through all the options and customizing it. And I don't know, it's a fun activity that you can do. Um, but what if you're not playing with digital character sheets in, in the previous one, we, we mentioned perhaps making a character on pen and paper. Yeah. Running a whole um, session or even a campaign on paper, which is kind yeah. of old school. Um, and I like old school and there are some really neat downloadable character sheets now that come in different sizes I've seen some ones that are, I think, what we would call like A5 or B5, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like the slightly different, like half a page sizes sort of thing. And they're double-sided or folded, um, made into little books. And they've got, you know, cool little, you know, spooky little corners and brackets and frames for pictures. And, you know, like they're they're all done up, you know, with, with some interesting you know, graphics and stuff to, to make them more vibrant and you can color them and you can draw in characters, or you can cut and paste stuff in. And, um, and it does seem that D and D leads to, leads to more crafting. Mm-hmm. And I think I love that about D and D, right? That there's a and little arts and crafts. Yeah. At some point you're getting scissors yeah. and glue out and that's fun. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, especially as a DM, if you start putting physical maps and stuff together, you're going to get out the paints and the, the scissors and the folding and the whatever is pretty quickly. I don't know. It, it's a fun thing. But as a player, I mean, to be like, oh, we're going to do pen and paper. You could just print out your classic three-sheet Adventures League piece of paper, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's an elegant, excellent tool for, you know, seeing everything about your character. But there's so many, if you look online, just like cute, you know, variations for every different class or, or individualized, customized Again, like you said, A5 kind of smaller pieces or whatever that are folded into these little booklets. And there's something very, you know, this, this, it's very, it's hard. It's so individual. I, I mean, so, for me, I, I even have a mm-hmm. an A5 binder that I keep. I can fit about three characters into it. Yeah. Plus, I've got a Single section. page character sheet. Yeah, yeah when there's a reduced size. But I have, like, all my character notes. I have, like, stuff printed out and that, that goes into this little binder and there's little separators. I have little cards tucked in each one that line my dice tray for each character. The dice tray liners are a great, fun way for me to very quickly be able to see, you know, just the, the things I'm asked all the time. You know, AC saving throws, you know, prime ability scores, you know, attack modifiers. Just just quick references right where my dice are rolling so you know i I'm, i've always got my main numbers right there and a little picture of my character and it often helps if i have a little like catchphrase or something that i put on there that helps me also get the voice right or whatever um, mm-hmm. and i also have in that same binder like a printout of cool ideas i've had for how their skills might work or how they might do sort of various checks or things differently or how you know just 
you know, anything that helps me sort of br- try to bring more to the table. Yeah, I think uh, that's a fun opportunity with digital character sheets as well. Or sorry, yeah. uh, physical character well, I mean, sheets. Yeah, digital I, ones, I just don't it's, think it's the digital ones do have sometimes. the same space. Yeah. I can do, I can often I'll take notes during things and then I'll retype them. And once you type them, they get shorter, more condensed. And also you can rearrange stuff then. Mm. You can start re- reprinting pages and grouping stuff of places and, you know, main NPCs and plot lines and what they want and need. And just organize yeah. all your stuff. And, and the nice thing about digital is that you can always switch up the numbers with one you know click yeah. of the delete button sure um rather than the, but the whole i'm not racer i'm not crazy about everybody always having a laptop open at the table yeah that's another aspect i i sure. don't mind like people pulling up stuff on their phones and that makes sense and especially when it comes to like tracking hit points from week to week and things like that you oh, know yeah. the digital tools are great for these things and yeah um but yeah i mean having paper in front of you and note-taking ability is probably uh you know a much um, you know much more pro move hmm. uh and that and that just means physical character sheets in my mind and that sheet is very you know loosely defined here like i'm my sheet is, a, is actually many sheets in a binder so hmm. yeah um and it, it something there the, the thing about digital and it always being there is, is especially for longer sessions it can get it can be an easy distraction speaking of longer sessions yeah um where distraction is where distraction Crazy. can become uh, a big thing, and especially as a DM, there's a bit more preparation improv skills that require. This is number, I think number sixty nine. Number sixty nine. Nice. Um, play a session longer than six hours. Um, I've done this. I, I think again. I have too. If this is a crazy even if it's for a one shot i mean you'll I know really have said oh i've played longer than that i've gone 12 hours That's and then nuts. we took a you know had a sleep and then we did another 12 hours the next and i don't know how i mean it's nuts how, my brain after so six hours is already yeah. is, is mush hmm. and, and this is i'm saying from a dm's perspective as a player yeah i could probably play for that many hours or more but it's on the dm for 12 hours there's a lot of cool. there's a lot of stuff to be having to handle hmm. and manage and prep um and and it starts to it starts to get yeah hard to remember especially if you start running combats again and again and you're like trying to keep track of things after a certain number of hours your focus starts to go mine does anyways but i think even if uh, it's just once i think having that nice there's i mean especially for groups that can maybe not fit in even more than two hours on an average night there's something about the whole dream of being able to on a weekend or some rainy day um, get everyone together for a long well, session. Well, you can really run, a, you can get a long, a long, long ways in a game in if six you can hours. play for that many hours. Yeah. Um, a lot can happen and develop. Or you can run, you can practice, like this idea of really long one shots. Mm. Like you can do a pretty decent sized adventure over six hours. Um, I think almost more than you can in three two hour sessions. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's just you think about the time it takes to set up and then the yeah. wind down um, with a six-hour session. It's just that that those wind-ups and wind-downs are still there, but the amount of time you have where everyone's in the full swing, yeah, the pace and fully in it, and the story's so, moving. It's some tips for mm-hmm. long sessions, though. Yes. Take breaks. Yeah. Take it, breaks. You need, it. you need a little break. Get caffeine. <laughs> um, Send your players out to get some snacks. As for a DM, people. have some water. Um, uh, yeah, stay hydrated. You are talking a lot. Um, also prep work is super important mm-hmm. you know you need to make sure you've got lots of maps ready to go in your back pocket you've got lots of stuff for random encounters and the ability to sort of just improvise because you it gives 
no way you can always plan everything for a six hour session. Um, you know, really, really have your notes together, but also don't be afraid if you, in a course of something like that, again, you need to call for a break so you can spend 10 or 15 minutes getting something ready or prepping or writing something or rereading or whatever. <laughs> um, that can definitely make, make your life a lot mm -hmm. easier. gives you a little chance to stop talking for a bit as well. Yeah. And players generally, you know, they can, they can either use the time to keep talking in character, out or, of character, or in whatever, what their plans right? yeah, are, or, what they want to sure, do. They 100%. can be talking above the table or just give them a chance to go talk about something else completely yeah. and like just break from it for a little bit as well. Before and, coming back to it, yeah. Um, and bring a little bit more mm -hmm. energy. I something I recommend as well, and this is what I've learned by, by running some longer sessions, is that a lot happens and that little names or details that can happen really fast um, can be forgotten pretty easily. Yeah, I like to take notes even as a DM about what's happening or decisions yeah. I've made on the fly pro, that are just scatterbrained. If you notes. come up with an NPC and they ask their name, you should write that down. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, <laughs> if, if you just improv the name, you and I, I mean, this is this is for every, whether you're playing a long or short session, mm -hmm. definitely write all your little random NPCs down very, like as soon as you create them, put them in your notes. You never know when you have to come back to that character again. Yeah, true. Um, I think shifting gears into another kind of fun table experience that's, yeah. that's kind of unique is having a table with more than six Number players. Number 68. Play Number 68. at a table with more than six players. Mm. Yeah. So this one's a little bit of like a maybe not the regular, but like give it a go. It needs to be managed um, differently. It Yeah. We have some... Uh, a podcast we did recently about you know how to streamline combat and a few things like that and just tips for for players and dms the more p people you put at the table the more you really do need to kind of streamline things so that you know you people aren't getting too bored with it with everything um it can be a lot of fun though as well there's a lot of energy you get from having all these extra people at the table mm. and things so yeah that's uh i I don't know what, what the largest game I've ever had. I think I had six players. I've never had more than six players at a table. It's like, I mean, you look at the way Critical Role has like what seven or eight people around a table sometimes, seven. and plus the DMs eight. So well, the, mine not including not even including the, the DM, DM, right? Yeah, mine, my my tables as well has been. Um, yeah, I think that I've done I've done back you know before fifth edition we'd had some bigger tables mm. but also it wasn't as crunchy i remember doing sort of bigger sessions that were a lot more you know a lot more sort of just role play exploration sort of stuff mm -hmm. um and uh yeah i think i think where we are right now where we're really a lot more a lot more rules is written uh i I wonder sometimes if six more than six players is a bit detrimental almost to the table. But well, I think it's again detrimental for long-term play or for certain aspects of the game. I think there is definitely a lot of energy that comes with having seven people excited to play sure. a game around the table. Well, here's the thing um, as well: it's unique. If you are playing week from week and you know that your 
tables are notoriously bad at that not everybody can make it all the time and you can come up with a system where players whoever's there is just there and if they're not we just pretend they were never there or whatever as long as we're not heavily deep storytelling where each character has a huge part in it um if you on average you can have you know always have five four or five people at the table that's more than enough to play with and you can keep going quite easily hmm yeah, it's true. I mean, again, having a roster of seven people, maybe sometimes you'll get all seven on the table, and that's a bit of a small miracle, yeah. right? But even if half the group can't show up, it's still a, n- a nice party of three or four, right? Yeah. And it just, again, it changes the adventure a little bit. I sometimes think you start your campaign out with six or more players, and then just as people move or quit <laughs> yeah. or can't keep going, it'll it'll whittle down, but you'll still have that's enough to sad. keep the... It is, but it's also fact of life. It's just I know, but know. just imagining an adventuring party just getting smaller and smaller. Well, that's, till it, only a couple also remain. sort of seems like seems like naturally how it should go. But yeah. you can always give them NPCs to, if you want to keep the numbers up. It's true. And on the other end of the spectrum is playing at a table with less than four players. So playing in a very small group of two or three, um, and you'll see this. I think or even one. Uh, well, yeah. Well, that's a, a, a solo adventure is, is well, the a, next one on our list after this. After but number 67, that. two or three people is, is a crazy kind of story, right? Yeah. Because a party adventuring, it's about their mission and their quest and them coming together. Is this group of different adventures. And there's something much more about the relationship of these two or three people when it becomes the smaller group, right? All of them really matter, right? Um, because uh, combats will go very fast. It'll be, you know, potentially two players against this you know selection of of maybe one bigger enemy the thing with having seven players is that if you're familiar with action economy there is so many turns in on the player side right and you're going to need an equal number of enemies or some really like much stronger enemies that can multi-attack or do whatever right to keep up with um, this side that has will usually have the more turns right the thing about having two or three players is it's not that hard to outnumber players right and suddenly combats can become a lot more scary um every spell is important each way the character is different and fills a different niche i mean you think about that much more right um as well as like i I think being able to like do a theme campaign where it is perhaps you tell a story of two siblings right two sibling adventurers right they're both perhaps up and coming you know urchin style you know from the streets not very and, and then again that has says nothing about their class or their race or the they could be two completely different races right but they're still siblings for whatever like exploring that i i think it's really interesting i find with small idea. tables as well the ad- addition of sidekicks or and don't don't even need that or you really uh, don't pets of some sort it becomes easier to add them in though sure because you already have fewer moving pieces on the, mm. the table so putting a couple more in you really need them for a solo adventure but for yeah. two or three people i don't know i could see a really unique yeah, it, three you player do, you game. just gotta as a dm um manage it and i've done i mean yeah, one shots are easier to do in small numbers i do one shots with small groups all the time and it's super fun and it's very easy to balance and sort out if you're you know you're only planning one session mm. with people i don't know i like again um, the idea of a campaign with just three people it's there's a lot more story that happens right because sure. the, there can be a lot that is slowed down uh, with different groups exactly. in different places going exactly. to jump back but and the, forth and but the pressure then to have everybody show up every night really yes has to it's be very there. true yeah um 
Yeah, because if anyone ma- d- misses it, they're integral, right? Their role is so yeah. important that they can't miss it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's you're they're one third or even one half of the yeah, whole group. It becomes right? like a, a, a three legged stool that's missing a leg. It's it gonna fall dips over. over. Yeah, um, especially yeah with two people groups as well. But it's again, I I think everyone should have a chance to play a D and D game like that because it is again very different. It is, and you're, I mean, the ideal size of a party is about five. Once you've got that, you've got all your bases covered. Yeah, maybe four. You know, you've got five, enough yeah, diversity sure. in 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 your party. In fact, if you start getting above that, the interesting thing with six and above is you can have really have like duplicate. Yeah. Classes, you can have well, like you know, they won't feel like duplicates, but no, but they you can have you know you can have two or three wizards two if you want. It doesn't seem two, like whatever, one, yeah. yeah, we have, and uh, and I've I've done games like that, and it seems fine. And you're right, they're not the same, but they're. It's fine to have that sort of doubling up. Mm. Whereas in the smaller groups, really asking yourself, okay, can we get away without a healer? Can we get away without, you know, because you're going to have to choose something not to have kind of in the party because they're not enough of you. Well, then you start to really evaluate each class and their their worth and how they're balanced against the other one. I mean, you don't have to do that. You could, again, just do the whole classic, and this is what I discourage people to do, just make characters by yourself in a vacuum um, from the setting or from yeah. other players and just be like oh turns out we had two rogues and uh yeah. you know a fighter this will be great um or you collectively as a party make a thematic group of people that's my favorite thing to do now every time i, I, w- I do a campaign i want to have a thematic group of of people who are related in story you know like who have a reason to be together um i don't know that's another discussion for i think a whole podcast though we could go into that um and finally, to sort of cap that out on number 66, playing a solo adventure. Now, I don't um, just mean one-on-one by solo adventure. What do you I mean, mean one-on-one? Like one DM, one player? That's still not a solo adventure. You mean what, just the DM There was something themselves. that I played a while back. Uh, came out when Icewind Dale came out called Frozen Offerings. Mm-hmm. It was a single-person, sure. choose-your-own-adventure style well, adventure. I think all of these are valid, right? Um it was really interesting. It's it's official mm. stuff. You can go find it. It's on the you know uh, wizards.com website, and and you make up a character and you read through it the same way that you read through a module, and then it gives you choices and you can from those choices you jump down to the next numbered sort of box on the thing and and yeah sure it doesn't give you the unlimited choices that you might have uh you know in a regular setting but again some of the things we're i'm mentioning in here that i'm bringing up it goes back to the idea of solo dungeons and dragons fun the idea that you can you can kind of play this game by yourself either through making up worlds making up characters or you know delving into these these things that are out there now that these solo adventures for one person sure i mean again that's one side of this and if you go on any sort of rpg shop you'll find single player solo rpgs right where it's gmless or if you want you are the gm and the player in, in the story right um and that's great for again you think about this time where perhaps it's harder to get with friends solo rpgs i've i've played them i've had a blast with them some of them are about you know making cities or and you you end up 
the end of this person with a character who has this whole story to them or this location that now you can bring to a, a shared tabletop experience, right? You could ask everyone to play a solo RPG where they kind of discover their own, they have all their own mini adventure by themselves and then they report back to the DM and have a little talk about that adventure and how they all experience the frozen wastes differently and maybe some of them bond over it down the line, right? Um, they feel a little bit more gritty or lived in or however you want the vibe to be, um, which is one potential with solo adventures, like solo solo adventures. Um, the other fun side of this coin, which you might interpret as a solo adventure, is having just a GM and one player. Yeah. This is even different from having two people because it, it is no longer about a relationship anymore um, between players. It is just about this person's adventure. And you can do a very interesting kind of lone wanderer style campaign where it is this person, much like a Mad Max or a single protagonist, and they will feel like the protagonist and it is okay for them to feel like the protagonist because the story is all about them and what is happening to them. And they in very much... They very much are the protagonist. And it's a it's a very interesting, almost intimate and vulnerable sort of situation mm. to have just two of you yeah. um, playing together. Now, this also works really nice as sidebar mini mm -hmm. adventures, yep. either pre-session zero or mid-campaign or something if people can't make it as a DM to work with just one player and see what their character does and where they go with things or to do a little backstory stuff, help them fill it in who they are. Um, it can be really fun on the player side. Um, but as a DM, I think you have to make sure you're, I think you have to be a little extra compassionate and a little, a bit more generous. It's not, you can't really just create a situation where it's a lot of antagonism and adversity because there's a real power dynamic between the two of you when you're playing as a DM, you have all the power. Um, and you need to be really, you know, responsible with that in a way that you know, that, you know, you're not, you're not using that power to, you know, manipulate the other person that you're, you're really there to have a good time. Mm. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Um, although you can tell sadder stories again you're right it, it, there is a, a good time as well as being satisfied with how a story concludes or, sure. or feeling yeah, a, a range uh, of emotion uh, right? Absolutely. you watch a scary film and be like well, well we're not having a good time yes we are having a good time telling a scary or sad or whatever like you know it's I, I think there is again something very valuable to having that experience of playing a solo adventure I think both sides of that one play a, an RPG that is just you um, and feel how that vibe is different and then play an RPG with someone else and it's just the two of you and how that is also very different. Um, I don't know. It's a unique experience for sure. Um, segwaying into 65 in our list and this leads us to perhaps a, a list, a litany of, of recommendations um, for what you could perhaps catch up on some D&D reading to expand your you know, understanding of perhaps it's homebrew or how the current, you know, game space is going or even official um, magazines that exist for D&D. And our first one, I don't know too much. I, I, I don't know. Is there a history with? Yeah. So the first one's Dragon. One. Uh, Dragon, Dragon magazine. magazine, which has been around forever and ever. It's digital now and they only come out every other month or so. Um, you can find it on the D&D website or dnd.dragonmag.com. Um it's it's really lovely uh you sort of scroll through it they they still have you know their senior editors and regular writers and columnists and really great cover art and they you know each 
month sort of delve into offering sort of again insights into the past and things that have happened before and how that connects to the you know things that are going on now centering articles but then they also will offer little mini adventures in there there'll be little add-ons and stuff um and yeah just you know Mm. loads of additional sort of content and stuff uh and it used to be a place where you'd find a lot of you know I mean, people like Chris Perkins, who now runs, um, you know, the lead designer on so much, he came up through, you know, pitching articles and stuff to Dragon Magazine and then became the editor for Dragon Magazine. And then, you know, now is sort of leading uh, much of the design uh, of the whole game system. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a great place to sort of the voices and things that you see in, in Dragon Magazine. Um, are very important voices. They, they tend to be people who are, you know, movers and shakers, but they're not the only movers and shakers. Um, there's another magazine uh, out there, Arcadia, uh, run by Matt Koval and a bunch of other sort of D&D luminaries putting together great stuff. Uh, again, I think it's probably every three months or something. Um, not a super regular basis, but that's fine. That's, you know, it's enough. Uh, also always with like cool little monsters or mini adventures or ideas for improving things like mounted combat or just lots of tweaks and interesting ideas that you might not have come up with otherwise um, and laid out in a beautiful easy to digest over a cup of coffee sort of uh, digital magazine format um, mm. there's another one that's paper based which is a couple uh, only two issues out I think so far, maybe, I don't know, maybe more is coming. Who knows? It's called Knock, and uh, it was a little bit more of a focus for the OSR community, but still... What really, is OSR for people who don't know? Um, original... Uh, what is OSR? It's like old school rules, maybe. Old, uh, is that right? Old school renaissance? Old school old renaissance. School revival? E- revival? Maybe that's what it is. That's what the R stands for. Um, but... The idea, I wonder sometimes if it means different things to different people. Um, a lot of people see OSR, or I think when they hear it, they think, um, like I was describing in our last week's episode, the, the Gygaxian dungeon crawls that just, you know, are meat grinders that you put in characters that get crushed and respawn at the beginning. And I don't think that's what OSR has to mean. And I think that, I don't think that's, when you read their magazine, what they mean by it. Um they sort of, I think this harken back to a time where you're not, I think the best of OSR is trying to say, you're not bound by your character sheet. Don't worry what this, all the skill checks on your character sheet say, you know, just try to do anything you want to do. And you and the, and the DM will figure a way of whether you can or can't do that or how much you can do that. Or and then the dice can decide anything that's kind of fuzzy in the middle. Mm, yeah uh but anyway so these all these magazines are out there and i don't know beyond the magazines i suppose there is like discord channels now and subreddits and all sorts of places where people are hanging out and posting content all Mm. the time and i suppose the thing about the magazines that i like is that there's usually editors and people in involved in it who are sort of gatekeepers that make sure the quality is really there Whereas some of the, obviously the digital platforms, you will have to Sift. be your own editor, <laughs> decide what you like and don't like. Mm. 
Yeah, um, definitely the case there, but there's a lot of gems and a lot of people who are still learning, and so maybe you find something that isn't as curated or, or excellent, and you can give some constructive criticism or have a discussion about it. I, I don't know. I think that these are interesting spaces that, if you are getting into D&D, are worth a look because um, everyone is just as, as perhaps scared as you are if they're newbies, um, and there's a lot of people who are reassuring in their experiences as well. Um, another piece of, of perhaps important reading um, in our list that we've experienced, not important necessarily, but I think really interesting at least, um, is looking at the art and arcana of D&D's history. There's a book called Art and Arcana, which yeah, we, we own. Yeah, we a special edition sort of tome that's got all sorts of... Um, it's a really just great collection, sort of a coffee table book. Um, comes in a beautiful box with, uh, you know, some of recreations of some of the original uh, books that handouts, um, some of the original artwork and things from, you know, everything from the, like, pictures from Keep on the Borderland and um, Greyhawk and Fiend Folio and other pictures like that. And then a a book that actually takes you sort of through the history um, year by year, showing you who, you know, who was big, who wrote what. Um, lots of little clips brought back from various players' handbooks and Dungeon Master's guides from over the years. And you can sort of see the evolution of the art and how it's changed and affected, you know, many of us sort of older players. You know, I have, I used to have very different ideas as to what things look like. Mm. Um Kobolds have changed over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Then, but it also shows you other pictures of things that you know have dropped by the wayside. You know, you'll see pictures of dark sun and stuff in there. You'll be like, oh, what was that? And there's where it's just like you know the art of Dragonlance, and maybe that's coming back this year. Mm. And you sort of can look through a bunch of it, and you realize, okay, wow, some of this stuff has, you know, there's a long, beautiful history to it. Um, the art of D&D is a huge part of the culture of where it's come to how like mind flayers have evolved over the years and um, the Demogorgon and which gone from being a very silly looking two headed thing with like snake arms to a Stranger Things cultural reference, you know, like pop oh, well, culture it's reference. Still a weird two head looking thing with <laughs> I know, snake it's arms. It's but pretty crap in the first edition. Though. Now it looks really cool. But, um, but yeah. yeah, and just, you know, there's so much. You know, there's so much to sort of, um, there's a lot of history to to appreciate, uh, and the art of it, that history, uh, is a great way to sort of see it. Um, so if you haven't seen the books, uh, there are there are places online, there's uh, some YouTube walkthroughs th- that you can find, you sort of see it, and people sort of, you know, breaking down, talking about it a bit. Um, but if you can get your hands on it, oh, wow, it is such a beautiful book. Mm, yes. A uh, big, big book, though, I will say. Yeah, it, it takes up some space. It's a coffee um, table. Sure. You need a big coffee table for yeah. it. Uh, the other side of this coin, and it's not even necessarily a curated, again, art and arcana list, something that you're going to have to curate yourself, but kind of the the present-day way that we enjoy art in sure. D&D. And if you're making a character, especially with an online tool... Or you're a DM looking for monster ideas. Or, sure, you can head to what we often use... Um, is Pinterest, right? If you're, if you're, well, well, we'll get into that in a second, but if you're looking for just like a character, you know, head screenshot or looking for inspiration or looking for some, you know, idea boards on what, 
you know, your world is and your characters are like, or if you want to like, sometimes I'll see something on Pinterest and be like, oh, and I'll do a little blurb or write something about that, or it'll inspire me to make something homebrew or make a character or make a setting or make a yeah, whatever. Yeah, sometimes right? like, I just cruise through mm. and just collect stuff that I think looks cool into folders that yeah. months down the line, I'm like, oh, I, I remember something. And I go back and I dig through and I'm like, oh yeah, these guys are great and cool. And mm. then, yeah, there's a whole, uh, yeah, something gets used or doesn't or I don't know mm-hmm. uh, but yeah for characters in particular I often sometimes think once I see a picture like that I know the character I want to build yeah um, I can often get a lot of inspiration you know just starting with the image mm. the thing is though if you are going to plan to use any art you find um, I mean D&D Beyond is a small you're not making you're not sharing it or, or claiming ownership over it there is a, a bit of an you should be uh, trying to respect yeah, the but artist. The, the idea, yes. The, now, my point Pinterest here is, is terrible mm-hmm. generally because yeah. people have clipped and posted stuff there from all over. Sometimes you can trace the artist back to Imager. Imager, Imager yeah. Um, you can find some of them online where they are and things. And yeah, if you can get a link to them or a shout out to them, tweet about them, you know, promote them, mm. push them somehow, uh, tell the world that you think their their artwork is awesome, that's great. Um and hey, you can go a step further as well. Some of these people, if you go and check them out, will say, hey, I'm open for commissions, mm. which means they are available to be hired to draw up a character for you. And if you've already seen artwork that they've done that you like, that you're like, oh, I wish I could have a character like, more like that. And for, for a negotiated fee, they may be able to make one exactly the way you want. Maybe they'll draw your whole party for you. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can, you can do. The community's huge now. Um, I see people on Twitter all the time promote saying, you know, that they're available for commission work. Um, so yeah, just get out there and, and find some cool art. Yeah. Um, Twitter often has days as well where they are sharing, um, shout outs to artists they like. It's not also a bad place mm. to, if you just start looking for hashtags like D and D, um, mm. Yeah, find quite a few things. Another great way to support creators in the D and D space is through a website called DMs Guild, which takes us to number sixty-two. Mm, number sixty-two, buying a supplement from DMs Guild. You added this one. What was the inspiration behind uh, this? I have, well, the inspiration is that I've bought a lot of supplements through this. Um, I think you what picked, is a supplement? You even picked for up something for free the other day, didn't you? I did. Yes. You can get a lot of uh, stuff there. People will put stuff there. Um, so DMs Guild is officially um, sanctioned by uh, Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's set up um, under a license that is very specific of what you can and can't do, and what kind of art you're allowed to reuse, and which pieces you have to. And you have to, you know, cite it all. There's some references that people have to make, but. Those everybody who plays by the rule can post their stuff there, and they can even put a price tag on it. So it becomes a much bigger ecosystem of of just it's homebrew, I guess, in some ways. But homebrew that sometimes you'll see, oh, this one's a gold bestseller or a platinum bestseller. That lots of other people are like are voting with their their pocket to say, yeah, this is really good content. Somebody who's really gone and made something wonderful and there's so much stuff um as a dm and you're busy you can't you don't always want to craft everything from scratch yourself sometimes it's much easier to and people are selling this stuff relatively inexpensively spend a couple of bucks sometimes you'll find stuff for free or even for free 
and uh and then yeah poof you've got uh oh gosh who knows uh, we've i've got so many things from them i've so many i've got so much curse of strahd stuff i've got from that um i did a thing recently where we supported um a fund for the ukraine and a lot of artists there had all contributed their works into it and we for a small you know charitable donation we ended up getting like 20 supplements from them like just mm -hmm. so many things for like you know new character ideas and new weapons new settings like uh, you know funny one-liners for npcs you name it like there's so much stuff there mm, yeah um yeah a lot of weird and fun compendium content that isn't necessarily all you know stats themselves as well that would that's but really you can fun. also find old books there as well oh, for sure you can yeah. buy older edition um modules and players handbooks or uh you know whatever there it's all available there mm, yeah I, I think this recommendation is really to give dm's guild a look see if anything catches your fancy and use it as inspiration um as well because um, that's what it's there for um another interesting source of, of inspiration perhaps um, in what is now a canon D&D lore, lore legend um, for many people is uh, Dritzt. Yeah. Uh, Doerden, is that is that his whole that's, name? That's and so our number 61 is reading uh, a Dritzt novel. Who is Dritzt? Uh, so Dritzt was a, is a uh, character. A drow. Yeah. Um, he was uh, a character written by R.A. Salvador. Um, Salvatore, Salvatore, Salvatore with a T. Um, the uh, I think he's, there's actually even some new stuff coming out from or has come out recently. Um, so he's still writing. Um, I was just actually looking, <laughs> flipping through the Dragon magazines for the previous one, issue 37 has got like a RA Salvatore sort of section in it. Um, and yeah, it's a tale of a of a uh, a drow breaking good, uh, you know, turning against uh, his family and uh, and Lolth and everything, and you know, mm. trying to lead the the good life. And I think it was a huge the sort of inspirational um, book when the first one came out. I'm not sure exactly when it did. I'm just gonna look it up. Um, his last one, Starlight Enclave, came out uh, last summer, but a year ago. Um, there's like Legend of Drift.com, and it's huge fan following um, behind uh, these characters. And I think it, in some ways, you know, what Salvador started doing was to start the the progress that we have we've seen culminate uh, in Five E now, where we are getting to a point where we're saying very clearly that not every not every race of, of creature that we used to consider evil is yeah. is evil. Mm, we had an episode about this, I think focusing on the Durgar a little bit more. But yeah, the idea that we can have more complex resistant narratives with what were previously characterized as, you know, evil or, you know, cultish or underground um, races of, of these, you know, dark elves or dark dwarves or whatever, right? It's in the name even you go, but yikes, right? But um, R.A. Our, our, our Salvatore's Dritz Doerden has always been an interesting um, figure in D&D pop culture. You'll see the references come up here and again, even in, in spaces outside of the D&D sort of world, right? But I, I think there, it, it's just a cute 
little Easter egg and, and nod that if you get it, you get it, you know. Um, there's little references here and there with, you know, R.A. Salvatore or the, um, Dritz's daggers or whatever, yeah, there's right? there's referencing Kingdom Rush even. There's a bit the, where... I don't know if you will know what that is, but... Anyways, there's a video game where you, sure. like, you see him in the corner, jumps up, pulls out his blades, and he's got a yeah. little black panther that follows along beside him, and you're like, oh my God, there's Dritz. Yeah, and the, the places that Dritz will pop up are... Um, surprising sometimes but i think if you've never heard of it or or even read an rs elvator novel i think give it a go um are they available online i'm not sure or for order maybe they're on audible who knows um i think worth a worth a look um on the reading train and maybe we'll wrap up with this one because we're nearly hitting the hour mark uh is read the lazy dm do you know lazy dungeon master life flourishes uh a guy named michael shea who's Again, a really well-known uh, name in the Dungeon Dragons community. Um, for, uh, someone who's very, who's got so many insights, uh, so much playtime experience. And yeah, he published a book and actually a follow-up to it, uh, The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is really, I think, fantastic reading because, I mean, whether you're playing first, second, third, fourth edition, Pathfinder, D&D, whatever, is um is really about how you go about planning and prepping your sessions it's about it's sort of in many ways a, a really great coaching book for taking a lot of the worry out of your game giving you tips for managing your time knowing what's important to prep how to which sort of things that you can put into your campaign very quickly that really help uh help give some legs help make it easier for players to know what's important where things are going um help guiding your story uh yeah i i personally think it's like it's a must read for uh for anybody starting out not that you have to do everything his way but i think it's just really good for helping uh sort of helping you give you know somebody who's got a lot of experience Mm -hmm. um and helping you sort of being able to bring that into your game and get your game up to a higher higher standard faster yeah um these are all fun resources if you never given them a shot give them a try um from dragon magazine to art and arcana to you know smaller posts on pinterest or you know the sub D subreddit like on earth arcana or you know published books like the the whole knock series or or the lazy dm um fiction non-fiction whatever it is there's a lot of writers out there doing D stuff that i think are worth worth to check out which is sort of our focus with this whole segment yeah mm. um and yeah it goes beyond that you could read dragonlance novels you could yeah. read anything let me just you know spend some time delving into uh the narratives the stories that have been written in and around dungeons and dragons um there's so much there's so much stuff you can you can get from that um uh, that will inspire your play in your games yeah dm or player i think they're they're always valuable um all right Thanks for joining us on the third part of our 100 episode celebration. I can't believe we made it this far. It's crazy. And we'll see you for part four very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.